Looking ahead. Challenges and opportunities in the changing world. Welcome to Talking Economics, a podcast by the Center for Economic Research and Graduate Education, Economics Institute. Why do some regions prosper while others lag behind in terms of economic development? Today we will talk about regional economics, from historical roots to contemporary challenges with Christian Ochsner, assistant professor at Sergii and research associate at the University of St. Gallen. Christian joined Sergii in 2018. He holds a doctoral degree from the Dresden University of Technology. In his research, he looks at critical junctures in history and how they matter today. Welcome, Christian. Welcome, and thanks for being here. Well, uh, we'll start with a very broad question. What is regional economics? Can you tell us more about how it, what it means? Yeah, so it's like always in uh, economics, it's the interplay probably between two variables. So one is the regional dimension. You can think about the uh, space, countries, and so on, and how this matter for economic outcome. So which kind of economic activity do we observe in uh, one place, but maybe not in other places, and how this uh, interacts with space or geography. Mm-hmm. I can go much deeper if you want. So Yeah, that would be interesting if you can say, like, um, in terms of decisions or what specifically are we looking at? Yeah, so we have also to think about that probably we as a consumers, any any decisions we are doing in terms of which kind of a product we are buying, uh, to which place uh, we go for our summer holidays and so on, that this of course has also a regional a component in it. So it's about when we consume products from Czech Republic, economic activity would take place here and uh, and not in other places where we are importing things potentially. Uh, it has a direct link obviously also for, uh, to infrastructure. So all the connection between spaces, which are the road network, the air train network, but also about airports and uh, so on. They are only there, of course, because people and economic agents uh, want to integrate a space in a sense. So we want to add trade with other people. We want to go to other uh, places for our holidays and so on. So every action in a sense that we are doing is uh, not unrelated to space and that uh, geography. So it, it has a real item what we can observe in places uh, close by, whether economic activity is taking place here or in other places. Mm-hmm. And another aspect, I guess, that we're usually looking at is who is more successful and who is less successful, right? Who is economically uh, prospering and who is uh, maybe not so doing not so great, right? So. Um, can you tell us something about the differences in in the prosperity across the regions? Uh, for sure. So if you look at uh, the history of what others will call urban economics, economic geography and so on, the main focus was always to explain why some places are uh, are better off compared to other places. So it's mainly about spatial uh, or regional economic inequality. Uh, if you look on the landscape of today, it's obvious that if you look within a country, 
often the ag capital cities and so on, other places that have much higher salaries, uh, GDP per capita is much bigger there compared uh, to the countryside. This was also true, obviously, in a historical perspective. So uh, uh, the Industrial Revolution, for example, was taking place in urban places or it uh, goes hand in hand with more and more things that were produced in urban places. If you think about long run uh, development in industrialization and uh, so on. So there is for sure a inequality, uh, a spatial inequality between urban places, countryside, and this is inequality also and mainly within a country. Uh, if you go on a more global dimension, potentially, if you think about uh, how how well off places are in uh, Western in in Western Europe compared to the former socialist part of the European continent, then these are huge differences that are still there. And they are still there even after 30, 35 years after the fall of the of the Iron Egg Curtain. Yeah, this is something that I wanted to ask more about. Uh, your, your expertise is the combination of history and economics. So can you tell us more about the historical origins of these inequalities? Like For sure. I mean, there are many differences in how these origins emerge. So one obvious answer is if you would ask uh, ordinary people uh, on the street, uh, if you would ask political scientists, even if you would ask uh, economists, for instance, uh, how to explain the East-West divide uh, between Eastern part of the European uh, continent that was exposed for 40 years or even longer uh, to Soviet dominance in a sense, and how to explain the backwardness in terms of GDP per capita figure, wages that are paid here compared uh, to the West, then most of them would say, yeah, it's that disruption that happens mainly after World War II with the planning economy, uh, with people behaving in another way than um, optimally in a market-based economy, for, for, for instance. And these shocks or this history that have been there for 40 years is still visible in present-day figures. So if you look at the GDP level in Poland and compare it to a Germany, there's a huge differences still today. But maybe a more pronounced example would be uh, Eastern Germany. So the part that was of uh, th that was the part of Germany that was under a socialist uh, hemisphere I mean, mm -hmm. in a sense. Uh, that then was unified with a Western Germany that was democratic place, a marketplace economy. But even in a case where you have the same legal system, the same country, people speak the same language, you still have these uh, ongoing uh, differences in GDP per capita in the salaries between East and Western part of Germany. And the conventional wisdom is as simple about that all the things happened after World War II until to the fall of the Iron Egg Curtain is because of this uh, disruptions of economic uh, agents and people. Uh, they are not prepared, in a sense, f to interact in the marketplace e economy. Mm -hmm. But if you want uh, to allow me that uh, I have also uh, 
a working paper that is hopefully soon to be published, where I tell a partial different story on that. It's mainly focusing on better things that happened during the last months of World War II, or things that immediately happened after the end of World War II, whether this matters for a long-run economic activity of some parts of uh, Europe, but not to others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is something that I think is uh, exactly the, the next next thing we should uh, we should talk about, um, because the paper is about the very short presence, right, of the Red Army in in a specific part of Austria. So, can you tell us more about uh, the paper? Yes. So. Indeed. So what I'm looking there is mainly the aim to look about whether we have a particular setting that is provided in uh, my case by historical circumstances to see whether the arrival of the, of the Red Army compared to the arrival of the troops from the United States, for instance, whether this matters for a subsequent regional economic development. And what I'm looking at here is on southern part of uh, Austria, where it was uh, a region that was at the end of uh, World War II, so at the day of the uh, uh, case fire agreement between uh, Nazi Germany and the Western Allies, in a sense, was still under Nazi German control. And then within uh, less than 24 hours, the Red Army from the east, but also the Western Allies from the south, which were the troops from the United Kingdom and the troops from the United States, they want to size this large uh, part of Austria that was somewhat still under Nazi German control. And at the place where the respective uh, armies, armies met, this became then uh, the line of a contact that only was there for around two and a half months. So it means that some places in southern Austria were quasi exogenously exposed to be sized by the Red Army with some bad treatments regarding lootings, for instance, but also violence uh, against uh, civilians. And other parts, just the neighboring municipalities, were, uh, were the happy ones where there was, where they were the last reaching uh, places where the forces from the United Kingdom or the United States uh, ever showing up. So I'm in particular focusing on this line of, of uh, contact after World War II. As I said, this was in place for only two and a half months. Mm -hmm. And then I look about what's going on in terms of regional economic activity in those places exposed to the Red Army for two and a half months compared to those that were the happy ones that were reached by US or a British. What are the uh, indicators that you're looking at uh, in terms of uh, prosperity or what, what do you compare and what is the duration uh, that you're looking at afterwards? So in particular, I look until the year uh, at 2011, uh, which are the data that are the most recent one in terms of the unit of analysis because of large municipality mergers and so on after. So I look probably on the entire 60 years after World War II and I'm looking on whether a short episode of violence behavior of a one army but not of another is really matter for maybe 10 years, 20 years or maybe even for 70 years. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that uh, if uh, I link this liberation at treatment to 
subsequent figures of regional economic activity, this still matters until uh, today. And I look in particular on population figures, so which places are more prosperous in terms of whether they grow in a population as a good approximation for original economic activity. And I also look on other measures like uh, the capital stock, like uh, measures of labor productivity in the year 2011. Mm -hmm. And so what do you find? Uh, I find amazing uh, results, I would say, that are quite astonishing, that uh, things are still unequal, even if you look there today in terms of the past population uh, evolution, but also in terms of local ad tax figures that are, that are used as a proxy for uh, local labor productivity. So if I may explain uh, a little bit more in uh, detail here. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously, as I told before, so the Red Army was assessing parts of uh, Southern Austria, other armies uh, arrived in other parts. And then I just look what happened across the line of a contact there. And initially, there was a relative decline of people that used to live in the parts that were sized by the Red Army. So this decline of population uh, from the last figure before World War II to the first uh, food voucher data I have to say how many people are living in a certain place is around minus at 12%. So it means mm -hmm. that the population relatively decreases in places close to the line of contact if these places have been sized by the Red Army by around at 12%. The surprising fact is that this initial drop of, of at 12% of people amplifies up to 25% in the year 2011. And what is your explanation? My explanation is simple story about who was uh, leaving those parts historically that were sized by the Red Army. And if you look at the data after digitizing tons of archival data and so on, I can tell a clear story about uh, if there is a violence in some part of a country, then in particular younger people, working age people, with their children will escape from those places. And this means that uh, regions exposed to a conflict get older because young people are moving away from those places. But the other ones get much, get much younger because young people, families, children are coming in. And the, and the uh, children that escaped uh, uh, parts that were sized by the Red Army are the parents of the years after. So it means if you look at fertility differences in the 1950s, in the 1960s, and even in the 1970s, so in a sense 10, 20 or 30 years after the Red Army has left this part of Austria, mm -hmm. fertility uh, differences are still there. there uh, 30 years after the Red Army have withdrawn simply because the children of today, the children of the refugees will be the uh, parents of the new generation at uh, 20 years after. 
And it means that this initial shock of 12% of population amplifies up to 20%, mainly because of a fertility and death rate differentials. Mm -hmm. And do you see where these people left? Anecdotally, I can tell a story of that. Uh, based on the data, I do not observe a municipality to municipality a migration statistic or something like this. Mm -hmm. But the overall view is about that everything in Eastern Austria that was uh, captured by the Red Army at the end of World War II and in the last day or, or in the first day after the, the case fire agreement, this was the place where a mass exodus is uh, taking place. And uh, be also aware that part of Austria also became a Soviet occupation zone for more than uh, 10 years. Part of the people that were moving to the West, so to places that were uh, liberated and then occupied permanently by uh, at the Western forces, um, 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 people mainly from Eastern part moved to those Western parts. Mm -hmm. So I can give you some example. For example, the capital city of uh, Austria, uh, which is Vienna, Vienna. Uh, shrinks by around 200,000 inhabitants uh, because of this escaping from the Red Army. Mm -hmm. And those people mainly stay in Austria, but they move to the West. And what I find is that uh, they move to the West independent, whether at the Red Army would there only be for two and a half months, as in my example, independent, whether they would stay for at uh, 10 years, as in the case of the Soviet occupation zone, imposed route to Austria, which leads also to the claim that I can somewhat say that people that escape the arrival of the Red Army uh, uh, would never return independent whether the Red Army would have withdrawn, let's say, from Eastern Germany and so on. And this gives um, an explanation of part of the story, while maybe Eastern Europe is, is still lacking behind Western parts, simply because what's happened in 44 is that the exodus took place from east to the west. If I take my story on South Austria uh, as a blueprint for that, I can also claim that people that left the arrival of the Red Army uh, are younger and more fertile, and this will then boost economic ac activity mainly in Western Europe, but not in Eastern Europe. So this is a story of Germany, potentially. Mm -hmm. So it's not only the Soviet dominance planning economy for 40 years. It's also about who has who has left right after the war. The migration. Mm -hmm. Well, now uh, this is history, but uh, we have a very, very uh, present war, right? Uh, somewhat next to the door. So are you able to draw some parallels for the for the wars and the war we we have in uh, Ukraine now? Many migrants are leaving Ukraine and, and settling here, right? So this is the aim. So this is the aim because I want to understand what's going on, basically based on historical experiences, but the aim is also to understand whether we can use these uh, findings researchers are uh, producing in a sense, whether they can be used also to answer present day questions, for instance. So this is my personal aim, but of course, it's also the aim of any ad journal that want to have 
a link between what we learn in the situation afterward or to whether we have a similarities in occurrences right today. And if you think about Ukraine, the parallels are clear and straightforward, I would say. So if you look at uh, the refugees uh, one year ago or one and a half year ago, it was obvious to everyone that there were more uh, women uh, escaping at a war zone, mainly from uh, eastern Ukraine, and also their uh, children. And if you think about the story, and this is likely still today, not all the refugees from Ukraine Ukraine will return to their home country, even if it would be a peaceful a place in hopefully a short period of time, but maybe in three or four years uh, and so on. So not all of them will return. So it means the children that escaped uh, the Russians uh, in eastern Ukraine, uh, part of them will stay in the Czech Republic, in other parts of uh, Western uh, of Western countries, but also in the Western part of uh, Ukraine. And these are the uh, parents of the children that will be born in 10 or 20 years. So probably what I find uh, with the story after World War II has uh, explanation power for how we can expect regional economic uh, differences uh, in uh, Ukraine in the future, which means in 20 or 30 years, it's likely that those regions exposed to the war, you will see that in terms of how densely populated they will be in 20 or even in, in 50 years, this will still be visible. And it's mainly because the productive young cohorts are leaving and they and this will then lead to this amplifying effects in a sense. Mm-hmm. So, so now we are planting the seeds for future inequality. Um, can you, from from your research, from the historical perspective, tell us more about what are the ways to actually boost the the prosperity in the country? Is there something we can do once, hopefully, the war is over? Once soon, the war is over. Are there things we can do? What what is history telling us that it's working for prosperity, except for migration? This is probably uh, uh, the most important uh, question here. The literature, I would say, mainly focus on, let's say, hard facts like uh, infrastructure, uh, road network, uh, subsidies to invest into the capital stock and so on. So there are much evidence uh, also for Eastern Germany that this do not matter so much and in particular do not matter so much to attract people to come back. So we need a better policy potentially based on my study in South Austria, based on my impression about how to think about Ukraine or Western versus Eastern Ukraine is about how to manage that people go back once it will be a peaceful part. And this is a challenge. So there are some studies uh, in the back and um, There are overview books about where scholars in the field of economic geography has discussing how to rebuild a prosperous Ukraine, for instance. And I counted this uh, book or this um, compendium about different articles there. There were probably nine or ten. Only one of those ten studies were focusing on people and saying uh, we should do some particular housing policies and subsidies. Uh, not for firms, 
that then is a cue that they will uh, pull the people to this to these places but we should uh, give some um, uh, a push up or a pull factors that people have incentives by themselves to to go there and start economic activity there so like housing subsidies and so on but if you look on economics uh, economists i would say uh, the majority thinks about that um, subsidies to build up roads bridges infrastructure, infrastructure. a in a sense is mm. what you should do uh, but m i would say uh, people it matters much more so how to make incentives to bring mm. them back but implicitly if i can say that the idea of building up better infrastructure is also aimed to be a pull factor to bring the people back but if you see the infrastructure in eastern germany and how many people went there where the infrastructure was improved enormously and if you look at the quality of the infrastructure in eastern germany compared to western germany the infrastructure in eastern germany is of a much higher quality simply because everything is built up from a scratch mm -hmm. 20 years ago but this did not lead to a major wave of remigration from west to the east. If anything, outmigration from eastern Germany, the former GDR, is still ongoing, and in particular of younger cohorts and better educated cohorts. So you have to build up, let's say, a vibrant society where young, innovative people are there in a place and then they build up something. And it should not be promoted that some state authorities, the European Union, will build up something in the hope that people then come back. I think history, history of Eastern Germany, does not tell the story that infrastructure is the way to bring the people back. I wanted to ask you about the the, the role of technology, because uh, exactly as the economists think, okay, if we do infrastructure, if we do, you know, if we prepare the, the place so that it will be... Uh, you know, functional, then people will come and use the the opportunity. Uh, you're you're claiming it's not working like that, but you have a research in which is also looking at uh, the uh, regional economic inequality f and and the role of uh, technology in there. Right? Can you can you briefly maybe uh, speak about that? Yes, thanks. So this is a great point that you come back to this uh, new paper in a sense. So results are quite in a, a, a preliminary stage there. But indeed, so what what is one extension to the paper or the idea we have discussed before? So that conflict cause a decline in population and then we look about whether this matter fought for the long run we can also think about new technologies that maybe um, uh, shapes regional economic activity um, one example is over a covid for instance uh, that uh, there was a discussion uh, when uh, now people can work from home maybe people will spread more equally across the across the countryside uh, this is based on the observation obviously that the rent prices in uh, Prague for instance are bumped, uh, they are growing enormously yes. uh, mainly because uh, people from the countryside wants to live in urban places because here are the good jobs and then over Covid and over the uh, Zoom revolution in a sense uh, people, politicians um, uh, uh, supporter of regional convergence were saying now this is our chance to bring people back to mm -hmm. the countryside. So it's a story 
we we look in history of course so we don't look on the covid a revolution and uh, or, or the zoom mm -hmm. a revolution you'll do in t 10 years though. <laughs> potentially i don't know whether history is over in uh, 10 years but but uh, <laughs> this is a lovely thing about that uh, uh, maybe this topic be becomes interesting for me uh, uh, if i'm if i'm retired i don't know because <laughs> then it's a long go back uh, a long time back yeah so the question is the question is importance and and uh, really about whether new technology which kind of technology ever can lead to regional convergence so that regions move closer together in terms of their economic activity or whether they uh, move apart from each other COVID and Zoom was only the argument mainly, oh, now people spread equally or more equally across the country. Uh, in fact, we do not observe that. Yeah, so so uh, cities, city centers are still the place for young people and young families to be. This was not the case. Uh, if you go to Western Europe in particular 30, 40 years ago, if you were a uh, a young father, then you aim to go to that countryside. So this was more mm. a spread of where people live and also spread of economic activity. But nowadays, since the last 10 or 15 years, people, more productive, better educated people, younger people are gathering more and more in a few places only, mm. leading to dispersion between uh, the countryside and uh, of course the cities. at the cities and this is not only a regional dispersion it's only also a political dispersion so mm -hmm. people that are more conservative that are older that maybe vote for some conservative parties they live on, on the countryside and those that more um, a left wing maybe or a progressive they live in cities so yeah we just saw that on the Slovak elections. <laughs> obviously, obviously, but it's the same in the Czech Republic. Yes. It's the same in mm. Germany. So there is a divide, um, an increasing uh, cleavage between prosperous urban places and the countryside, not only in economic terms, but at the end, also in uh, political terms. And this may be unhealthy uh, for finding a compromise and understand each other. So are you arguing that technology is actually not uh, making the difference? At least if um, I would propagate my study that I do in uh, Switzerland, where I look on uh, one particular technology that was not available for a long period of time and then becomes available in some part of the country, I would say that access to some technology would even amplify or increase initial uh, differences. Okay. What technology are you looking at? I look on a fancy one. Maybe <laughs> a lot of people are, are caring about and these are automobiles. Okay. <laughs> so uh, if I can explain in a little bit more detail. So it's about that uh, one canton of uh, Switzerland introduced the automobile ban for 25 years. So this was in the early period of automobiles until the year 1925, uh, automobiles were a common feature, mainly for uh, the, the better of people, but it was not a mass a phenomena like it is today. But independent of that, I mean, uh, those, those part of Switzerland that imposed this automobile ban until 1925, 
people, entrepreneurs, uh, the lodging industry, hotels, they wanted automobiles can also enter the borders of this of particular course. place. So there was huge debate whether the ban should be ended or not. And then it was ended in, in 1925. And the idea of automobiles is obvious. It, it uh, connects uh, places uh, better with each other. And if you think about automobiles or Zoom, the arguments are the same. Uh, it, uh, the argument was with automobiles, uh, people in uh, remote places have a uh, better chances to do economic activity or the rich uh, tourists from outside will now also come to very remote places where before that they only go to the hotspot of economic or touristic mm -hmm. activity. What we find if you look at um, the openings and the closure of uh, firms based on commercial uh, registers, is about that we observe a boom in economic activity in terms of mm -hmm. foundation of firms right after the end of the boom. So in 1925, in 1926, and this boom mainly takes place in very small places and very uh, remote places. Huh. So this is what people would think of. Those places that arguably should benefit the most from a new technology are really start at to boom right after this technology became available. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, at 10 years after, most of these newly founded firms in remote places get a bankrupt and do not e exist anymore for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Which so means in the remote, badly connected places before, without this technology, uh, there is only a kind of expectation that the future will also come to those places and then there starts a boom a period, but this is followed by a bust period. And if anything, in the long run, we observe that the automobile boom starting in better connected uh, places that starts some three years after the end of the automobile ban, this boom in the better connected, better off places is more sustainable. So at the end, it's not a convergence story. It's only about that was a fire going on, a boom mm -hmm. and bust period in the remote places. But at the end, those that have been strong before are those that also more sustainably uh, profit from the access to this new technology. Mm -hmm. So that prosperity is a, is a really long-term thing and just changing one thing uh, does, not, does not change the overall outcome, right? Um, generally, yes, of course. I mean, there are studies, an example where this or this kind of policy has long run consequences uh, and that you can change something with political measures or policies. But as a combination of all the papers I know of all the studies I'm doing with archival data and so on, it's really about people and matters for prosperity, for economic activity. And if you do not uh, reshuffle where people used to live, where they start economic activity, where they build a family, inequalities in regional space will be uh, persistent. So a technology per se does not change anything as long as people do not re allocate. And this was not the case in this historical setting where we look uh, on uh, Switzerland. And of course, you can change regional economic activity if uh, an ugly, forceful army is uh, showing up and then 
part of the population is replaced, then you have real uh, impact. But in building this bridge there or not, does not matter so much, or having this technology or not, does also not matter so much. Uh, Christian, I think these are excellent, uh, excellent concluding words. So thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for, for your insights. Yeah, thanks for the interview.